Well, good morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us here today, whether in Ajax, Port Perry, Pickering, or Bowmanville. Welcome as we continue to walk through this incredible book called Galatians. Now, I know not all of you are parents. Uh, for we who are parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, uh, we all know that usually when we have younger children, there is a, bed a bedtime routine to put our kids to bed. And over the last uh, uh, 12 years, because I have three kids under 12, uh, I've sort of invented this bedtime uh, routine with my children. There are not one, not two, not three, but four components to put each one of my children to bed. The very first thing I do is the famous crisscross. Does anyone know that at all? Crisscross applesauce, spiders crawling up your back. Do you know this? Tight squeeze, cool breeze. Now you've got the shiveries. Crack an egg on your head. You all go down. Do you know this? No. Okay, anyway, this is what I do with my kids. And then the second thing I did is I wrote this years ago for Hannah. I go, and this is a back and forth thing between me and my kids. I go night, and they say night. And I say sweet, and they say dreams. I say I'll see you, and they say in the morning. I say I love you, and they say with my whole heart. And I say catch my kiss, and we kiss. That's uh, copyrighted John Thompson. You can't steal that. <laughs> then the third thing that I do with my kids is I sing to them. And I sing a very familiar song for some of you, not all of you, called Jesus Loves Me. Do you know this? Right? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And then at the end of that, I'll pray for them. And I was reflecting on what I do routine every single night with all my kids, sometimes with great enthusiasm, sometimes with nothing. And I realized that that song... Jesus loves me. I'm singing the gospel over my kids every night. And actually, it's the one line that we need to think so much on today. Whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, you're from another faith, you have no faith at all, you've just become a Christian, or you've been a Christian for a very long time. It's the one phrase, we are weak, but what? He is strong. See, that is the Christian message that is the beauty of the Christian message. It is the offense of the Christian message because it is a declaration how incredibly weak we are, that we bring nothing to the table, and yet God, because he is holy and love, brings so much to us. And that actually is the whole point of the book of Galatians. So if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to turn back to Galatians again, and let's keep going. This is, I think, week eight it's been 16 to 20 years since Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Christian communities are now growing across the Roman Empire. Paul plants some of the first multi-ethnic churches in history, which we now call Turkey. He, he leaves to start other churches, and this terrible crisis begins. This letter was written to a group of churches that were being tempted to give into a false gospel and walk away from the true gospel. And these false teachers are called Judaizers. And let me again summarize what another person wrote. These false teachers, only 16 years after the Jesus event, are saying, not all Jews are Christians, but all Christians now must become Jewish. In other words, if you really want to become a child of God, you not only need to accept Jesus, but you need to become ritualistically Jewish. But this is what Paul had been teaching, and here's how another summarized it. Jesus plus nothing is everything. The way you become a child of God, the way you get eternal life, the way you get forgiveness has nothing to do with you. It's Jesus' work alone and his grace alone and it's through faith alone. And the false teachers, well, they taught everything right about Jesus. 
Oh yes, Jesus is the Son of God, and yes, he's divine, and he's one with the Father, and he's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, and yes, Jesus really died, and he really physically rose from the dead, but that's not enough. You've got to believe all of that about Jesus, plus if you're a male, become circumcised, you need to Sabbath keep, you need to eat kosher, and the list went on. So you could boil down this whole conversation simply this way. Is real faith about promise or performance? The false teachers have told these people, you're not children of God yet. You've got to work more, uh, prove more, hustle more. God's holy, you know. It's, it's promise and performance mixed. And, and God will only love you. And God will only sing to you. And God will only forgive you. And God will only tuck you in and sing over you at night. And God will only care for you and treat you like a child and call you a child after you prove yourself. Performance, they taught, is the only way to truly be loved. And the false teachers kept saying about Paul, well, you're not being that biblical and you're ignoring the whole Old Testament. And Paul, remember, who was a world-class scholar, an Orthodox rabbi who studied under Gamaliel, one of the best Jewish minds of that age, says, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, I'm fundamentally more Jewish than all of you, but I've encountered Jesus risen from the dead and if anyone's failing to listen to the Bible, it's not me, it's actually you. I'm fully Jewish. And yet you keep saying to all these non-Jews who've accepted Jesus, you need to become more Jewish, more religious, more devout. And so as we've been walking through the book of Galatians, we begin to watch Paul undo that. And, and the very first thing he did, you remember, he said, look, if we believe being Jewish is the way to be saved, let's go back to the very first person that became the very first Jew. I mean, let's go all the way back to Abraham. And remember back in Galatians 3.6, he said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then he said, understand then, those who have faith are children of Abraham. Do you remember again the story of Abraham? Abram was his name. He wasn't looking for God. He didn't know God. God shows up into his life. And in Genesis 12.2, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. So God, watch this, calls Abram a religious pagan. He didn't know the true living God. He didn't know there was only one God. He definitely did not know the God of Noah. The region he comes from worshipped the moon and all sorts of other demons and deities. And yet, though Abraham did not know God and worshipped false gods and was not looking for God, God came to him, introduces himself, calls him, saves him out of all of that blindness at 75 years old. It's never too late to meet God. And says, I'm going to give you a promised land, and I'm going to give you a family, and out of that family, every single nation on earth is going to be blessed. And like we found out over the last few weeks, so time passes, and nothing happens. Even though Abram has obeyed and moved and all this stuff and walked away from his dad and gone to this new place. So then Abram has a conversation with God and says, we got a problem. Remember in Genesis 15.3, Abram says to God, you have given me no children. So a servant now in my household is going to be my heir. Then God went, no, no, no. And he took him outside. He says, look up at the sky. I count the stars if you can. He said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, here's the line, believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham, Abram was called righteous, okay with God, in good standing with God, in relationship with God, before he ever did anything that was fundamentally Jewish. The very first Jewish person was made right with the only true living God because, first of all, God chose him, not that he chose God. Second, 
He is declared righteous 10 years before God institutes the symbol of circumcision. And third, he's called righteous 430 years before even Moses is given the Ten Commandments. So he is already righteous, already in good standing with God. And why? Because he's devout? Because he's religious? No, no, no. He is made right with God through one thing. Everyone ready? Faith. Not faith in faith, not faith in nothing. No, faith when God speaks, informed trust, I believe what God says. I believe the promise. And in that moment, God credited. It's like God walked into his bank account and he, had, he didn't just have zero. He was an overdraft and God wiped out everything, wiped out the mortgage and actually filled his bank account and says, now what I declare over you is true. You are my child. You're in good legal status with me. and You're fine. And Paul says now in the Galatian context, why are you listening to these false teachers? Don't waste your time with them because they contradict even who Abraham was. Remember, he'd like this, write this later in Romans 4.1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified, made right with God by his own works, he had something to brag about and boast about. Oh, but not before God. Because what does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then what did we learn last week? Last week, Paul says, well, how do you become a child of God? And, and when does it happen? And he says, well, it's really simple. You become a child of God when you are like Abraham, when you act like Abraham, and you believe in the promise of God. And, and Paul has declared just like Jesus himself has declared, like the church has declared for 2,000 years, that the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham, the greatest promise of God, is his son who? Jesus. You believe on Jesus, who is the promise, and then you become like Abraham. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Anyone thankful this morning you're adopted by God and called a son and daughter of God? Now, now watch this. Jesus, who's one with the Father, chose to come. He wasn't forced to come. He chose to come. He's one with the Father, and he loves us just like the Father loves us, and he loves his Father too. And it says that he chooses to be born, what? Under the law. So Jesus chooses to live under the penalty and calling of the Old Testament Ten Commandments. But here's the difference. Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived under the penalty of the law but never broke the law. And even though he never broke the law and he did what we were all supposed to do as humans, ready? He still decides to put our law-breaking on himself so we can become adopted as sons and daughters. He becomes the law-breaker for us by taking our law-breaking on himself. And we learned this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us, that's a phrase, to buy someone out of a slave market. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for as it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. We've talked about this twice. Let me do it briefly again. In Old Testament times, if you committed a capital offense and you were sentenced to death, you'd be stoned to death in that culture. And when the stoning was over and you had died, they would place your broken, mangled body on a tree publicly to, to declare two things, that the community had rejected you, oh, and God had rejected you. And so here's the shocking, amazing truth of the Christian faith. 
Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus, who never broke any law, Jesus, who's one with the Father, is the one who stands in our stead and takes all of our law-breaking and becomes the curse for us. This is why Paul would write later in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so we might become, here it is again, the righteousness of God. Jesus is treated almost like in a legal sense, like a sinner, because all of our stuff is placed on him. And, and what's the uh, amazing result of that unfathomable work? That we might receive adoption to sonship. So Paul is writing this group of churches, but also speaking to the whole world, to especially churches wondering and wandering, looking for love they already have. And he says, stop. You're already loved. You're already called. You've already acted like Abraham. You're already adopted. You've already accepted the promise someone else did the performance for you. Can I say that again? You already accepted the promise because someone else did the performance for you. And this brought us last week to the pinnacle of our most personal and shared Christian faith. That as Christians, unlike anyone else on earth, we get to call God Almighty, the Creator, the Great I Am, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that Moses encountered at the burning bush, the one that inspired all the prophets. We get to call the Eternal One that angels worship 24-7, the Uncreated One, Abba, Father, Dad, actually, Daddy. Galatians 4-6, because you are now sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son Jesus into your hearts, and the spirit calls out Abba Father. So for four chapters, watch this. Paul has been telling this group of Christians and pleading with this group of Christians, showing them you're already loved, you're already children of God, you're not slaves. The love of God has always been the beginning point. God does all the work. All you must do is trust and believe in the promise. Abraham shows us that faith is before the law. The law, when we look at the Ten Commandments, shows us our sin and how far we are from God and how much trouble we're in and moves us to a place where we look for a Savior. And then God provides the Savior who is Jesus. And then Jesus shows up and takes all of our best attempts, whether they're deeply religious or spiritual or secular, and he replaces them with the better covering, which is Jesus himself. And you don't earn this, you don't buy this, you don't seduce this, you, you don't be fundamentally religious to get God's attention. You just say yes to Christ, and he cleans you. And Paul says, you ignore these false teachers. You do not need to become more religiously Jewish. You've already accepted Jesus' work. He has covered you. The conversation is done. But still he can feel at this point they still don't believe. He still can feel the seduction and the sort of fundamental pull towards being good and trying to prove yourself. He says, why are you so anxious to be a slave again? Why don't you still get this? Why are you so attracted to what these teachers are saying? So here's where we pick up in Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So you want to be under the law. You think you need to add to Jesus' work and his power and his love and his mercy. You think that you need to work for God's love. You think you need to work for, to, to, to be acceptable to God. You think that God the Father is calling you before the beginning of time isn't enough and Jesus' work on the cross isn't enough and the Holy Spirit's presence in you isn't enough. So you, you, you still think Father's calling, Jesus' sacrifice, the presence of the Spirit. You need to rely on the law to still be clean before God. 
You're still so unconvinced. You're still holding on and clutching to the bitter end to your own saving work. Okay. He says, fine. Let's go back to Abraham again, but this time, not to him. I want to talk to you about his two kids. He would presume most of you know the story. Two kids, two wives, one dad. He says, I'm going to show you something. Oh, there's two children, but one remains and one goes. You want to be very careful because you're called to imitate Abraham that you're the one who stays and doesn't go, right? So he says this in verse 22. It's written in the Old Testament that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and another by a free woman. Here's the story. Let me give you the background because I know not all of you would know it. It's been 10 years since Sarah and Abraham, called Sarai and Abram at this moment, live in the promised land. Still no kids. Still no fulfillment of the promise. Sarai is still barren. And please, please understand the context. In the ancient mind, being barren, unable to have children, and some of you have lived through this, you know how painful this is. But it's more painful in this culture because in this culture, if you could not have children, it was a sign that God had judged you. It was not just a source of communal shame. It was a source of divine shame. So when the silence of God, after the so-called promise of God, doesn't happen, and the pain and the shame just seem to be too much, oh, and when fear is stronger than faith, and when self-sufficiency and survival becomes stronger than salvation... Sin walks into the room. Abram and Sarah, Sarai think that God might not come full, fully through. So they, they decide they need to help him out. Ever done that before? Ever tried to help God out? Abram's really old, I mean really old, and his wife is barren and old. And yes, we believe in God and we've left our family and we now believe in you, but we need to help God out. You know, it's promise, yeah, but it's actually still performance too, so let's just be practical. Ever said that before? Let's just be practical. Genesis 16.1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having kids, so go and sleep with my slave, and perhaps through her I can build a family. So he went and slept with Hagar. Oh, and she conceived, and when she knew, that is, Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to hate, despise her mistress. Oh, then Sarai came back to Abraham. You're responsible for this wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant, and now she despises me. May God judge between you and me. What a mess. It's like the Jerry Springer show. So sinful, mixed up, so complicated. You did this to me. I thought you told me to do this. No, it's all your fault. By the way, side note, God didn't ask for this. God never commanded this. God never said, oh, it's okay, just go sleep with a slave girl. That's No, never. Abraham and Sarai tried to do their own thing and ignore only what God could do. He, he commits sins like fear and panic and trepidation, overcoming faith. And yet, despite his sin and despite their unbelief, God's not done. Thank God God uses unfaithful people. Anyone want to say amen to that? Well, the years pass. Actually, 14 more years pass. Ishmael is now a young teenager. That's the son born of Hagar. Abraham's 100, still no promise. And then unexpectedly, God shows up to Abraham and says, um, I'm going to give you a son. Like I always promise, I never change, and you're going to have it through not Hagar, but Sarah. 
I promise I don't lie. I don't change. Genesis 17, 16, I'm going to bless her. And I'm surely going to give her a son by her. I will bless her, and she'll be the mother of nations, and kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell face down and laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born of a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Some of you are like, oh, no. Oh, yes. A little bit later, the time comes. God repeats the promise that you're going to have a son but now we get a little bit more insight in, in, in Genesis 18.10. It says, Sarah now was listening at the entrance of the tent, and God spoke these things, and Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, am I, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Are you joking me? What a joke. We gave up everything for this God, and we've moved everywhere and everything. But listen, I'm old. This is skeptical. This is impossible. This is hopeless. This is ridiculous. This will not happen. Well, God is listening. And though Sarah's on the other side of the tent, and God is meeting with Abraham in a tent, it says in verse 13, then God asked Abraham, why did your wife Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for God? I will return to you in the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Oh, just as a side note, do you notice in some of the greatest encounters between human beings and God, the response in God's face is laughter. One of it is joy-based, one of it is skeptical. And yet, in the middle of skepticism and fear and belief and unbelief and faithfulness and unfaithfulness, here's the amazing thing. God still works. So Paul says, back to Galatians, okay. So you know the story. Hagar has Ishmael. Sarah has Isaac. That's all historically true. It happened. Ah. But let me just take you a little farther. This incredibly hurtful, dysfunctional story is going to help us see this issue so clearly. It says in Galatians 4.23, His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Oh, but the son born to the free woman was born according or as the result of divine promise. So one is slave, one is free. One is born out of normal, natural, everyday means. The other is the impossible becoming possible. One mother is young, fertile. The other is old, way past menopause, did not even believe it could happen, should happen, or would happen. One normal, one human, one everyday, one divine, one promise given, one impossible yet true. See, Abraham believed the promise but did not have the faith to wait for God to move. So he said, I need to help God out. Human ability. And did you catch it? Abraham basically in this historic situation says, I will save the situation. I will become my own savior by acting. My ability, my resources, my family, I will, ready, get God's promise through my own strength without relying on God's power, presence, or promise, period. So let's see what this really means. I mean, when we're talking about how does someone become a child of God, and then Paul says... Incredibly offensive, shocking, incendiary-like words. And he says, let me draw the parallels between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and you today. He says in verse 24, these two or these things are to be taken figuratively in this case. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai that bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. 
You're like, I don't get that. Well, let me tell you, he just threw a grenade and everyone's running. He says, you want to know what Hagar represents in this case? Oh, this represents when you think that you're going to be saved because you have the Ten Commandments and you're trying to be good. Slavery. Oh, he says even something more offensive. He says at this moment, 2,000 years ago, this represents the temple right now in Jerusalem, still be used by all my fellow Jews, and they're all slaves, even though they think they are not slaves, because they think they're saved because they're born in the right family and they're Jewish. Oh, and they think they're saved because they possess the law, unlike all the non-Jews. Oh, and they think also that as they're trying to obey God's law and try to maintain it perfectly... That they are not slaves. No, no. He says they're all from Hagar. They're all slaves because the gap between a holy God and our sin is so huge that for you to attempt to do it on your natural ability and means is failure. Oh, he says we need something else. We need grace. And he says the Jerusalem that's from above, oh, she's our mother. Not the copy down here, but the one above. And here's the thing, ready? The only way to get there the only one to connect with and have a relationship with the one who lives there. That's the only true living God. The only one who's going to connect to God is through Sarah. And Sarah rep represents promise, not works. Not by helping out God, not be, by being religious or okay. Fundamentally, just about one thing. Promise. Oh, and then Paul does it. He says, as it's written in the Old Testament, out of Isaiah, Be glad, barren woman, you have never bore children. Shout for joy and cry out loud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Uh, this quote is from Isaiah 54, 1, when the Jews were in exile for the second time in Babylon because of their sin. This prophecy or this quote is given 1,200 years after Abraham and six to 700 years before Paul and Jesus. At this moment, God's people are scattered everywhere. They have no life in them. They're all slaves or they're living in slave-like conditions or they're not free in the fullest sense. And they're saying, we've got nothing. And, and metaphorically, the Jewish people are like a barren woman, woman who can have no kids, no life. And yet God comes along and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to do the impossible and make it possible. And Paul quotes this here because he's saying, don't you get it, you Galatians? You Christians who are non-Jews, who have met the God of the Jews through Jesus, you are the fulfillment out of this, ready? Out of Israel, out of Abraham's descendants came Jesus, who's the savior of what? The whole world. It's the promise over performance. It's always grace over works. Or as another wrote, now that you are helpless, you will see it as the weak in whose lives my grace works. The strong are too busy relying on themselves. I'm going to make you numerous, great. And so this is what he says in verse 28 of chapter 4. Now you brothers and sisters, no, you're like Isaac. You're children of promise. You're nothing but a miracle. When you trusted in Jesus and what he did for you, you realized performance would never be enough. He already changed everything. You're loved by God through Jesus. You're already loved, already, and God already is your Father. Jesus is already your Savior. You have nothing to prove. You don't have to give up your freedom. And right here, right here, Paul struggles for the soul of the church, but also talks about the difficulty all face. He said, at this time, the son born according to the flesh persecute the son born according to the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. He says, oh, it's nothing new under the sun. 
Paul says, oh, do you remember what happened? It says in Genesis 21 that Isaac grew up and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had bore to Abraham was mocking Isaac. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Ishmael is 14 years old. Isaac is now very young. And he begins to mock and attack the little newborn. This is sibling rivalry of the worst kind. If you read the early Jewish commentators on this, they actually say that Ishmael declared war on Isaac. Another actually says Ishmael, when pretending to play with his younger son, a younger brother, shot arrows at him. Paul's saying there's always a fight. Everyone ready? There's always a fight between those who've been born of grace and those who do not think they need grace. Religion, in every form on earth, is threatened by the true work of God, which is promise and gift. Tim Keller from New York summarizes this best. Please lean in and listen. He says, Paul is flatly stating that the children of the slave, those seeking salvation through law obedience, being very religious, will always persecute children of the free woman who enjoy salvation by grace. Why is this? Because the gospel is more threatening to religious people than even non-religious people. Religious people are very touchy and very nervous about their standing before God. Their insecurity makes them hostile to the gospel. Why? Because it insists that their best deeds are useless before God. He says in verse 30, well, what does the Old Testament say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. That slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Abraham exiled Hagar and Ishmael. And now in the allegorical sense, Paul says to the Galatians, you now know what you need to do. You need to go to these false teachers who are sincere but sincerely wrong and reject them, move on from them, kick them out of church, exile them just like Abraham did to Ishmael. Now, by the way, side note, this is not a comment on was it right with what Sarah and Abraham did. Was it right for Abraham to sleep with Hagar in the first place? No. Was it right for Sarah to be filled with jealousy as she hatched a plan to break God's promise? No. This is not saying it was even right for Abraham to kick Hagar out and kick Ishmael out, which was not. But Paul, in an allegorical sense, is drawing out the spiritual meaning from this real historical event. And Paul is saying these false teachers that think they know God and represent Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, they think they're with God and for God and pointing you to God. They think they're in alignment with Abraham. Actually, they're not children of Abraham at all. They're not children of Isaac at all. They're not children of Sarah at all. They don't even know them. They're spiritual slaves. They're spiritually more non-Jewish than they are Jewish. They think they're Isaac, but really they're Ishmael. They're slaves, born of slaves, promoting slavery, and they dress it up as freedom, and it's not. Here's the truth about Christianity. Faith always precedes works. Grace always precedes law obedience. Promises made to Abraham are always more important than the restraints of the law. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we're not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul says, hey, you know, Abraham had two kids. We are the spiritual children of Abraham as Christians. 
Kids by promise, not by duty, not by just coming from the right family, not just being earning things, not by works. Hagar could and Sarah could not. One had ability, one did not. One was ordinary, one was promise. One was human-centric, one was God-centric. One's based on performance, the other's based on promise. And this again brings us to the greatest truth, the most beautiful gift, and the most offensive thing about the Christian faith no matter where the Christian faith pops up around the world. I've quoted this before. Let me do it again. It was C.S. Lewis, the famed atheist Oxford scholar who later became a Christian and wrote Mere Christianity and Surprised by Joy, and most of you would know the Narnia Chronicles. And he summarizes this battle between performance and promise like this. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who will say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God will say in the end, your will be done. Another wrote this. Why aren't the Ishmael types in our world free? Well, they're not free because they lack the desire to rest in God's promises. It's not that they desire to reject God. They simply want God on their own terms. Abraham and Hagar wanted God's blessing, but not on God's terms. The Judaizers wanted God's blessing, but not on God's terms. Ishmael types in every age rely on human resources and don't desire to feel like children in need of a dad or a patient who needs a doctor. See, here it is, ready? Ishmael types think they can outgrow this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, and he is strong. Therefore, when it comes to saving faith, he writes, Ishmael types do not have the freedom of desire. They don't want it. Therefore, they lack freedom of eternal life because no one who prefers to live in their own strength rather than trusting in God will be saved and go to heaven. I've preached this before. Let me do it again because I know there's so many people here who week in and week out come and try to understand the Christian faith. What does Ishmael look like today, allegorically? Well, he takes many forms. Slavery takes many forms, and the, those who are in slavery think they are the freest. I've said this before, the most devout people on earth. It can take any form. A, a devout uh, Muslim who prays five times a day and makes the pilgrimage to Mecca and, and obeys, and the devout Orthodox Jew who prays at the Wailing Wall and tries to obey the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, 613 of them, or a devout Roman Catholic who thinks by going to confession and going to Mass, or even some of you who come to churches that preach, promise, you think that somehow going to Connect Group and coming to church and giving to church makes you okay with God, or Buddhists who believe in, in self-denial and attempting to access nirvana, See, it doesn't matter whether it's monotheistic or polytheistic like Hinduism. The point is this. Every single religion on earth fundamentally teaches performance over promise. You must prove yourself to God. You have to do all these things, and then God might encounter you. You might access the divine. You might become one with the universe. Whatever, they, But it's all the same. Then there's the spiritual people among us, right, who go to chapters all the time and love all the self-help books, right, and, and like I always say, love the hot yoga and everything else, right? 
and they believe in their heart that they will define how to access internal peace and purpose in life, and they will align their chakras and everything else, attempting what? To find purpose and hope. But they're still defining it. And then there's those who don't even believe in the supernatural, atheists and agnostics who trust in science and, 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 and intellectualism and human potential. And if you hear what I always say, even the nice person, I made this joke a few weeks ago, it's even the nice person, the nice Canadian who isn't sure what they believe at all, but they're the one who lines up in the Tim Hortons line and they give to the United Way and they like their neighbor a lot. If you get all those people in a room and you have them talk with each other, they're going to turn on each other. The religious people are going to say, the atheist, you're totally wrong. And the atheist is going to say to the religious person, you're wrong. And the spiritual person says, who cares about all this? I'm just going to meditate and find my way. And the nice person says, I'm just giving the united way. Like, listen. And in the middle of the conversation, here's the shocking thing. And this is why I keep repeating this. They're all the same because every single one of them are their own saviors. Human potential, it's us. Spirituality, I define it. Religion, I will earn my way to the divine. Nice people, I'm nice when I die. If there is a God, my niceness will overcome my bad, bad right? Because there's a scale. No, there's no scale. All of that is performance with many different forms. And even nice, good, sincere people are slaves and they do not know it. And Christianity comes along and says, no, no, and here it is, Galatians 3.26, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through what? Faith, promise. Christianity declares the most offensive and the most beautiful thing. The first offense is this, not all human beings are children of God. All made in the image of God have inherent worth, need to be dign have dignity and respect, but you only become a child of God. You only encounter the true living God. You only access upstairs. You only get to know God as dad and father and daddy as Abba only when you go through his son Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that has dealt with sin. Because Jesus is the only one who never broke the law. And Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life and died. And like I've preached before, he's the only one who's come back from the dead. No one else has come back but him. And he has the authority to tell us what's on the other side. And he is the one who stands in our stead and says, no, no, you need to understand. I am the savior of the world. I am the one who will set you free from performance because I did the right performance for you. All you need to do is believe in the promise. That's me. Jesus is the great bridge builder back. And if you, whoever's listening to me today, have trusted in any form of self-reliance, whether it's secular or agnostic or it's deeply religious or spiritual, I call you today to attention and I say to you, repent and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus himself has taken the penalty. He is the only one who can set you free. He's the only one who can make you a child of promise. Your performance will never measure up to a holy God, but he who is one with the Father has dealt with your stuff and loves you and wants to call you a child and bring you home. Just say yes to him. Just say yes to him. That's all you need to do is say yes to him. And then the good works come out of that, not before, but after. Now again, let me end this whole section of Galatians because starting next week, it gets real practical how to live a Christian life. But before we get there, let me just say one thing. This passage reminds us never to lose the wonder. It's Christmas time. It is Christmas time, by the way. Some of you don't understand this. It's Christmas time. I have four trees up already. What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> Christmas music starts October 31st. Baby Jesus came out during Halloween again this year, saying that. And I think all of us, as don't mock me, it's true. I do not accept you. So, 
So we got to catch this, though. This is important. We all know around Christmas time there's this sense of wonder, right? And we all want to be like the kid who remember at 3 o'clock in the morning just can't wait to get up and wondering if you heard Santa. And, like, there's just this wonder and this awe that as adults we miss it, right? We miss it because we, re- we, we can't access all of it because we know more facts now. But I just want to remind you as I preach this today, it's not a very practical thing in one sense, but it's very important, and it's just, it matters. When you hear a message like this, you need to recapture the wonder of your faith, the childlike wonder. You, as Christians, are children of the promise. We are children. We are the heirs of Sarah. That God would love you and make you a child and forgive you of sins and guarantee you eternal life and death doesn't win in the end and you'll never be alone again and forgiveness is true and he really actually has forgiven all sins you've committed and you do have eternal life. Like, you need to this week, as you get ready for the Christmas season, just start praying in your devotional time, in your, ta- your walk with Jesus time. Just start saying, Jesus, help me recapture the wonder of this faith. Or, to put it in the Old Testament terms, to recapture the joy of my salvation. Why don't you be honest? Why don't you raise your hand if you've lost some wonder in your faith or the joy has gone a little bit? Be honest. Raise your hand a little bit. Yeah, higher. Don't be afraid. Right? So let's ask God to change that. Can we do that? Can we stand at all sites? And let's just pray about this together. So number one, thank you that we are not slaves. Thank you that you did not reject us, but you called us home. Thank you that we're forgiven. Thank you that we are loved. Thank you that our home is in heaven. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's never based. We want to say as a church, thank you. It's not based on what we do. We'd never make it. Thank you. Anyone want to say thank you? Yeah, say thank you. Uh, for those listening online and those who are attending who are seekers and skeptics and, and are trying to understand this, who have never said yes to Jesus, just say right now, you can say it and cross the line of faith. If you give up so much, you can get so much more. Just say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want promise, not performance. I lay down everything I've trusted in, whether religion or spirituality or education or looks. I embrace Jesus, make me a child of God. I want to be able to call Father, God, Abba. Forgive me, I turn from myself. And for the rest who raise their hands, who've lost the wonder of their faith because they're tired and life has beaten them down, Holy Spirit, would you come in great power across our church to say to us again we are children of God, but to recover the wonder of our faith that it is by promise. All glory be to God the Father who called us when we were not looking for him. All glory be to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in our place when we were not looking for him. All glory be to the Holy Spirit, who opened our eyes to Jesus and to the Father, who's come into us and made us children of God, guaranteed our resurrection, and assures us of the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you, God, for your profound love. We pray this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. Amen.